Hello and welcome back to Everyday Oral Surgery. This is your host, Dr. Grant Stuckey. I'm an oral maxillofacial surgeon practicing in Denver, Colorado, and I really appreciate you tuning into the episode today. Thanks to all those who have emailed and texted me ideas about topics for the podcast or guests they want to hear from. If you would like to be a guest on the show or know someone you'd like to hear from, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com. Also, please visit our website, everydayoralsurgery.com, if you'd like to search the podcast in an easier way by topic. We'd like to hear from everyone and really appreciate you guys listening. Keep in mind that everything we're discussing here is based on personal experience and opinions, so please supplement everything you're learning here with approved research studies. Without further ado, please enjoy today's episode. All right, welcome to another episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. Today I'm with Dr. David Hirsch. He is an oral maxillofacial surgeon practicing in New York. David, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Grant. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, this is great. A couple of your residents kind of reached out to me and told me some of the cool stuff you're doing, so I'm excited to talk to you today. My first kind of question for you is if you could just give us a brief history of your training and your current practice setup. Sure. I did my dental school at NYU and followed that up with oral and maxillofacial surgery and medical school also at NYU. Then left New York and went across the country to do a head and neck fellowship in Portland, Oregon with Eric Dirks. Um, Then came back to New York, spent about 10 to 12 years as an attending at NYU, kind of managing head and neck oncologic practice as well as a private practice, and then moved uptown to Lenox Hill Hospital, which is part of the Northwell health kind of continuum of hospitals. And from there, you know, in actually in the heat of COVID, took a job with Northwell, sold my private practice to Northwell and became the senior vice president of uh, dental medicine for all of Northwell, which is about a 25 hospital conglomerate in New York and the surrounding area. Okay. That's terrific. I also heard that you were into wrestling at some point. Can you explain that? (laughs) Yeah, sure. (laughs) I wrestled in college and I also coached in college before I went back to dental school. Wrestling has been kind of, has definitely been a big part of my life. Wrestled at Cornell University and coached there and continue to kind of keep up with the team, de facto team doctor, which if you know about anything about sports, they Team doctor probably should be an orthopedic surgeon, but <laughs> I'm a good triage team doctor. So I can get the guys to good docs when they blow out their knees and shoulders, but the best I can do is give them some Toradol and inject their joints and then send them on. It's awesome. I have to ask, are there any parallels between wrestling and oral and maxillofacial surgery? Well, of course, there are a lot of parallels. First, you have to be able to deal with pain. <laughs> yep. You have to be resilient. I think both of them, oral and maxillofacial surgery and wrestling, are really close in that a lot of what we do is individual. And so, you know, obviously you have help and you have assistance, but at the end of the day, you're usually ultimately making decisions about patient care and you're under pressure when you're operating. And, you know, wrestling was the, was the exact same thing. And I think really any individual sport really can prepare you well for 
an oral and maxillofacial surgery residency. Obviously, team sports can do it too, because you know, residency is all about collaboration and teams. But I find that some of the better residents that we have are those that participate in individual sports because you need to have a lot of self-discipline and you need to have a lot of grit and you need to be able to deal with adversity under pressure. And so I think that, you know, certainly prepared me well for my future career. That's awesome. You know, sometimes I feel like I'm wrestling with my patients. I mean, we're just in close proximity. We're right in their face. You know, a lot of times we're moving around in sedation. You're trying to hold their hand down with one hand and do the surgery with the other. It's a pretty intimate setting as far as, you know, the spectrum of, of work goes and how close we get to people on a daily basis. Yeah. Yeah. I was talking about the emotionals, you know, part of it, but the the physical part, you know, now I'm an old man, so I can't beat anybody up. So, (laughs) you know, probably wouldn't come in handy right now. Yeah. Use your mental powers now. Oh, that's awesome. Well, good. I kind of heard a little bit as well with your experience with the John a day, you know, quote unquote surgery. What has been your kind of history with that procedure and and what are you still doing with it? Sure. Yeah. I think that technique is definitely still evolving and we're doing a lot of it. I'm probably doing about anywhere from two to four cases drawn a day a month, you know, which I really enjoy. It started about 10 years ago and there was a, a small company at that point called Medical Modeling. And you're in Denver, correct? So medical modeling started in Golden. And Andy Christensen had started the company. And it was a fairly small company. And they were kind of producing just 3D models, using materialized software, producing 3D models. And I met Andy and I had a real keen interest on just the technological side of of oral and maxillofacial surgery. And, you know, we had been doing a lot of head and neck, and I just became intrigued with that technology. And I said to myself, well, kind of how do we evolve or how do we bring this technology to what we're doing? You know, back even as early as, you know, the early 2000s, we were doing free fibula flaps on patients, and we were basically guessing where the bone should go and using rulers and all sorts of other kind of crazy ways to make the osteotomies in the fibula and then just eyeballing where it went. And more often than not, that was a good reconstruction in that the patient got a piece of bone in their jaw, but it was never in the right place. And so I thought, you know, that worked well for plastic surgeons and otolaryngologists, but as oral and maxillofacial surgeons and dentists who are really interested in detail. And also we're the final stop in those patients' journey to get fully reconstructed because we put implants in and put teeth in. I just wasn't satisfied with what we were doing. And so Andy Christensen, myself, and another surgeon by the name of Evan Garfine, we just kind of sat down and said, hey, what can the software produce? Can we produce guides and translate what we do on the computer software? to real-time surgery. And so as we did that, we, we were not doing jaw in a day, but we started to put implants in and, and then things were really accurate. 
And so as things became really accurate and we started to trust the technology, we said, well, why don't we see if we can do a one-stage surgery where patient comes in, whether they have malignant disease or benign disease, excise a tumor, put a bone graft, a vascularized bone graft in with implants and teeth all at the same time so that we don't have to have this poor patient wait a year or two years to get fully reconstructed. And so we started doing that in 2010. You know, the technology has gotten better. The advent of 3D printed plates has really been a game changer. And in addition to that, the use of metal guides and better guides and more accurate planning really kind of has helped that. And I, I think in the US, it's, it's become very common for most large centers to be providing that jaw-in-a-day technique. So, you know, 10 years ago, we started doing it. You know, I didn't come up with that, that idea on my own. There was a group from Switzerland who his name was Dr. Rohner. Dennis Rohner. And Rohner was doing a two-stage technique where he would expose the fibula, put implants in, put a skin graft on, and then bury the bone back in the leg, and then come back three weeks later and do put the bone in the jaw after resection. I said, that's a great thought, but in the US, that wouldn't go over well doing a two-stage technique if somebody has cancer, or even if they have benign disease, nobody's going to come back for two huge surgeries. So using and looking at what he did with putting implants in and then putting teeth on the same day, we kind of modeled our technique after that, but did it with one stage. Wow. That's a cool history and kind of evolution of that procedure. I mean, what are the most common pathologies that you're using this procedure for these days? So, you know, right now we're using it for benign tumors of the maxilla mandible. We're doing it for malignant disease of the same thing, of the jaws. We're doing it for osteonecrosis. We're doing it for basically any disease that requires a segmental mandibulectomy or, or a maxillectomy. Nice. That's awesome. And you're getting pretty good results or what, what are you seeing years after the fact? Yeah, we're getting good results. It's, it is technique sensitive and I've gone through all sorts of iterations of what the right thing to do is, do you put the bone, do you put the plate on the leg? Do you put the plate on the jaw first? Do you put the implants in based on different guides? And so I've kind of come full circle with this thing. And yeah, we're, I mean, my guess is we'll probably have about a 93 to 97% success rate. It's pretty good. And even putting, you know, a fibula graft with teeth through a, a skin paddle seems to work well. And I like to do that on patients who are going to get radiated because really the best time for a patient to get implant placement is when the jaw is not radiated at all. So those patients were doing pre-radiation and sending them off to radiation with teeth. And that seems to be, seems to be doing pretty well. Nice. And what, I guess, technique type tips or advice do you have for those surgeons who are wanting to get this going or who are kind of in the infant stages of practicing this stuff? Well, first of all, you have to have a, a team that's committed to doing it. And so if you're, there's all sorts of different collaborative teams, you know, there's a full oral and maxillofacial surgery team where the oral surgeons are doing both the flaps as well as the ablative surgery. Then you have the iteration of other specialties doing part of it and you doing part of it. And so the team just has to be committed to doing it. 
And if they're not committed to doing it, anything that goes wrong doing the surgery, then then they're going to bail on it. And so again, you have to have like minds that really want to push the envelope and do something that I think is is special for the patient. Like I said, I think you know this is kind of the the essence and the ultimate in digital planning. And so we're in a really good position to do that because we're really good at top, you know, back top down planning and planning from the teeth all the way back to where the bone should go. And so again, it's, it just needs some commitment from the team. You know, I have a, a fantastic team who wants to try new stuff and do cool stuff. So we're doing a lot of this. We've, we're doing, you know, jaw in a day in scapulas. We're doing it in fibulas. We're doing it in any way that we, that we can do it. We're doing it. So again, it's, it's important that everybody kind of be engaged. And so I keep everybody engaged. I have everybody in the planning meeting. I have everybody involved with all the papers and, and design and, and from start to finish because it's, it's important to have good teammates. Yeah. I was going to ask about the preparation. Is it pretty time intensive or I'm sure you've kind of streamlined it over time, but what does that preparation look like for you? Yeah, it's definitely streamlined. You know, we used to get online and plan and take two or two and a half hours to plan these things. But you know, now we plan at least in about, you know, probably 20, 25 minutes. And again, it's just about the team and everybody knows what each other's preferences are and what we like and what our roles are. And so it's, it's pretty easy again, when you have a good team. Okay. And how about the operative portion of it? Has that become kind of quicker and more streamlined over time? I'm sure a lot depends on what pathology you're dealing with and all that stuff. Yeah, that, I mean, that's a great question. It's definitely uh, case dependent, but for a fairly straightforward case, you know, my, we're probably doing this in about six to seven hours. Okay. Which, you know, when we first started doing this, we'd be in the operating room for 14 you know, to 16 hours. And I just think the you know, microsurgical techniques and harvest and use of couplers and better technology has just made things so much you know, more predictable and faster. Yeah, I'm sure all around it's more conducive to better patient healing when it's a quicker, if more efficient surgery. Exactly, exactly. And like, you know, the, when the patient gets less fluids, less anesthesia, less tracheostomies, yeah. they get out of the hospital fast, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that's a big deal. Awesome. Very cool. Well, it sounds like you have had a great kind of experience and evolution with this the surgery kind of to shift gears a little bit but practicing in the big city in new york the biggest of big cities you know do you have any kind of experience or i guess advice for for people who are wanting to go to a big city and try to succeed in a competitive environment like that yes of course i do um i think i was probably the first person to do first oral and maxillofacial surgeon trained fellow to do head and neck surgery in New York City. So that was a huge learning experience for me. It was, you know, the surgical portion of this is easy. You know, you, you do a fellowship, you get trained really well. But what you're not taught is how to get along or how to succeed in a politically charged environment. And so it's one thing to do head and neck you know, in a small town where there's not a lot of competition, but where there's a lot of competition, you're going to have struggles. And so 
you know, initially, and I've heard other people talk about this before, it's really important whether you go into private practice or whether you do academic oral and maxillofacial surgery to not put yourself in a silo. In other words, don't, you, you don't want to be a bull in a china shop. And again, I've done all this stuff wrong. So I've learned from experience and you want to come in and you want to collaborate and you have to be able to put your ego aside and make people trust you, whether it doesn't matter what specialty you are, oral surgery, ENT plastic surgery, you just have to fit in with the team. And then when they see what you can do, your role and your involvement with the team will increase. And so again, I think it's critical to come into, especially at a politically charged competitive place to not make political enemies up front. You want to fit in and you want to show them that you're part of the team. And then as soon as they, you know, and again, most dentists and oral maxillofacial surgeons bring a little different spin to the game. And so we plan well, we do, we really execute things really well. And I think they, other specialties, or even your own specialty people will appreciate that. So that's one thing. And again, the other thing is you got to stick to it. It's easy to come in and to a situation that, you know, you trained your, you know, a very long period of time and you get out and you say to yourself, hey, you know, I deserve this and I should just be able to do whatever I want without any backlash or, you know, any difficulty. And, and that's, that's the wrong way to think about it. You know, coming enabled and entitled is really bad. And again, I speak from experience. And I thought because I spent all this time training that I was just going to go and somebody was going to hand me the keys to the castle. But it doesn't work that way. Unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. And, you know, once your training ends, you know, you, you're beginning all over again. And so you have to climb that ladder. And so, again, those people who are willing to kind of put in the work, to stay resilient, to not quit, I think those are key things to surviving in, in a larger city. You know, there are some good things to it too. So lots of competition. So every patient I see probably goes for two, three, four opinions. And our consumers demand the best. And I like that. You know, I want my patients to go to the best person. I want them to expect the highest level of treatment. And so that makes me, at least, really try to strive for excellence. And my patients won't accept anything but the highest level of care. And so, again, it makes me better being in a competitive environment because if I know that I'm not doing things great, I'm, I'm just going gonna to lose patients. And so, I like that aspect of it because the patients will kind of push you to being as good as you can be. Yeah, that's awesome. I like what you're saying about not, you know, being in a silo and working well with your whole community and not feeling entitled or trying to take digs on other people. I think it's so, it's so much better for all of us when we're working as a team and not like fierce competitors, you know. Absolutely. And and oral surgeons could be their worst own enemies. And so, yeah, again, it's, I took over the, the North Shore LIJ program. And, you know, again, I think because of COVID and, and my kind of surgical upbringing, I, I really had to look at myself in the mirror and say, hey, what do I need to do to try and thrive and succeed? And, and as a chairman of a, of a large program, how am I going to make this place better? And so, you know, I realized pretty quickly that, hey, if I want to do well, and I want to do well as a leader, that all ego has to go away. I can't be the best guy in the department. 
I'd like to be the coach and hire all the superstars that are that much better than me. And if I can do that, then I can elevate, you know, kind of the level of the of the program. And so, you know, just as a as a side note, you know, our residency program has been around for quite some time, but we are growing very rapidly and we're doing a lot of really good stuff that we haven't done before. And so people are taking note of that. We're getting better residents every year. And, you know, my feeling is I'd like to be, you know, one of the best, if not the best program on the East Coast the next couple of years. It's awesome. I hope you guys get there. That's so great. Well, this has been helpful. You know, I think a lot of good information for a lot of our listeners. Probably a big contingency of our listeners are residents, oral surgery residents, dental students, a lot of people trying to figure out what to do with their careers and their lives. And it's, I'm sure, great for them to get exposed to different things. What advice do you have maybe for the oral surgery resident who is trying to figure out, you know, what pathway to take? Should it go into private practice, you know, a hybrid, pure academics? Like, what do you counsel these people? So the first thing is you got to do what you love. And if you love the bread and butter portion of oral and maxillofacial surgery, then, you know, that's what you should be doing. Me personally, what I'd like to do, at least with our residents, is I'd like to have a good cross-section of what residents do after they finish training. So I would like a fair amount, obviously, to go into private practice. I would also like a fair amount to do fellowships. You know, the opportunities today for oral and maxillofacial surgeons are, are amazing from both private practice and fellowship training. And so, you know, for me, I wanted more training. I loved operating and I didn't get enough in residency. And I said, I want to do more. And so fellowship made sense to me. But you know, again, there's so many new opportunities and more fellowships that I believe that if a resident can afford it and they're not in too much debt, that they should do fellowships. If you look at medical specialties, ENT, plastics, any of the surgical specialties, it's rare that somebody just finishes their residency and just goes into practice. You know, most of them subspecialize, most of them do fellowship. Probably 95% of ENT go into fellowships. And so, you know, I, I like that model. I think we should be doing that. Even if you get training or you get an additional year or two years of training, doesn't mean that you have to completely limit yourself. And so, if you want to do private practice after a, a year of fellowship, you can do that. I never restricted what I do clinically, I do everything. So, I know you had Brian Bell on, on your podcast. And, you know, I, when I trained out in Portland, I, it was a head neck fellowship, but I was like a sponge. I just watched what they did and I tried to see what they did, what I liked, what I didn't like. But what I really liked was that they did everything and they did everything well. And they did trauma, they did orthognathic, they did cancer. And yeah, I didn't want to give any of that stuff up. So I continued to do all of that stuff. While, you know, the most of the stuff that I do is focused on, on head and neck oncology. I still do about you know, probably 30 orthognathic cases a year. And I take out lots of teeth, I put in implants. And so again, I, I love everything in the specialty. And so the other advice I would give is don't limit yourself. It's really hard if you go out into private practice and then say, oh, I want to go 
do a fellowship. That's a really hard thing to turn around, but to go into a fellowship and then say, okay, I'm, I'm going to go into practice, I think that's okay. So my advice to students and to residents is you only get so much time while you're in your residency and you only get so much operating. And so if you have the opportunity and you're healthy and you're fairly young and your family is going to let you do it, then I would do as much training as humanly possible. That's great advice. Very good for our listeners to hear that and to kind of get that under their belt because like you're saying, it is so much harder to try to reverse it and say, oh, later on down the road, now I want to get more schooling. It's just so much easier to do it at the beginning. So very cool. Well, good. We end every podcast with some rapid fire questions. So if you're okay, I was going to shoot some over to you. Okay. First one is, what is the best book you've read in the past year? (laughs) The CEO of our hospital, his name is Michael Dowling, and he wrote a book called When the Roof Caved In. And he's just an amazing leader. And he's the CEO of Northwell and was formerly the assistant to the New York state governor. And he's, you know, again, in a leadership position, I'm kind of looking at people and and trying to emulate and see what they do. And he's a guy who I really look up to and respect. And so I just, you know, I've read that book over the last couple of months and I really liked it because he was a guy who came from almost nothing in Ireland and now was the number three most influential healthcare worker in the country this year with number one and two being the CEOs of Pfizer and Moderna. And so, you know, that was a book I enjoyed. It's just impressive to see somebody who, who just worked so hard from the bottom all the way up to the top. That, that was after the roof caved in? Yeah. By Michael Dowling. That's cool. I got to look that up. Give it a read. Next question is, what non-oral surgery thing do you do that helps you with your daily oral surgery skills? <laughs> that helps me. So I have a fly fishing addiction. Okay. And I don't know. You're from Colorado. So maybe, I don't know if you like that or not, but. Yeah. I love to fish. Yeah. So I travel all over the world fly fishing. It helps me escape from the oral surgery world, but you know, to tie flies and to tie knots definitely helps with your dexterity. I like that. Yes. Tying tiny little knots. Yeah. It sounds pretty familiar see that every day in your surgery. Okay. How about what forceps do you use to extract tooth number 14? I don't think you really want to know that answer. (laughs) Well, I tell the residents I use an ash forceps for every tooth, (laughs) (laughs) but that's not true. I just use a standard 150. Okay. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) Gets the job done. I like that. What's the best movie you've seen in the past year or two? Or maybe what's your favorite movie? That's a good question. Well, I like Vision Quest because okay. I, I was a wrestler. So yes. that's a good movie. But that's an oldie. Most of your listeners will not know that. In fact, most of my residents don't know any of the music that we play in the OR. And so I always quiz them. I say, hey, because I know they're not going to know the answer. If oh. you, I tell our chief resident, if you know who sings this song, I'll let you graduate tomorrow. (laughs) And they've never been able to get any classic rock hits. It's kind of pathetic. That is pathetic. (laughs) It's hilarious. That's been really helpful. 
to talk to you. Another question is, you know, if there are listeners who his interest is piqued by what we've discussed, are you okay if they reach out to you to kind yeah, of get? Absolutely. Look, so the thing about New York programs is they're way too regional. In other words, for me, the sign of a healthy program would be to have residents from all areas of the United States. And we want to be a destination. And so it's important for me and for us to kind of spread our wings and get people from other places. So anybody that wants to contact me from anywhere, we are extremely excited to talk to people. We want people to come visit us. We want people to come do externships and we want the best candidates. So right now we have seven full-time oral and maxillofacial surgeons. We're doing a really large number and really great variety of all aspects of, of surgery. And so, like you said, anybody who wants to contact me, I'm happy to talk to anybody, happy to give anybody advice. And that's something that's really important to me and important to our, to our staff and faculty. Awesome. Well, cool. If you don't mind, I can put like your email or something on our show notes. So if Absolutely. people want to reach out, oh, thank you. I'll put that there for people to, to discuss with you. But I really appreciate you taking the time and to talk through some of the stuff with me. And I wish you the best there in New York. Thanks, Grant. Appreciate it. All right. Have a good day. Thanks for listening to this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. Once again, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com if you have any topics you'd like to hear about, guests you'd like to hear from, or if you yourself would love to be a guest, please, please email me or text me at 720-441-6059. And I also just love hearing from people if you enjoy the podcast or, you know, learn something from it or talk to a friend or connected with someone because of the podcast. That just makes my day. So please shoot that correspondence over to me and I will see you on the next episode. Thank you. Mm-hmm.